Happy New Year from Inappropriate Conversations, and I'm starting this particular podcast this way because I'm continuing with the Talkback series. Here in a few minutes, we'll get the Hello, I'm Greg, and I'm going to repeat in the month of January, uh, Inappropriate Conversations 150. I've got a theory, and I haven't gotten this feedback directly, but it just kind of makes sense that with a podcast episode in my past that ran about three and a half hours long, that that could have been just a little bit daunting in a single file for a single listen for, well, really almost everybody. I know that the track had many downloads and listens, but it feels like this might be a good time for me to continue to recharge my batteries, posting shows from the past as I did in the month of December and even a little bit late November, with episodes from the past related to Christmas. This time, I'm going to carve up Inappropriate Conversations 150, into a six-pack of sorts. Some, or at least one of the episodes, will probably be longer than an hour to keep the flow of the thought process going, to not um, interrupt arbitrarily, I suppose. But a lot of them are going to be in more like a half-hour-sized chunk, and I think all of the ones after this one will have a very short introduction. Because I do want to let the opening of the scriptures episodes of Inappropriate Conversations kind of speak for itself that that three-and-a-half-hour stream was built largely on quoting particular passages from the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, at length. And essentially, it was my way of laying down a marker to say, I probably have points of view that the religious right would view as somehow flawed or faulty. The accusation you tend to see is that folks have a kind of a underdeveloped understanding of scripture, or they don't take the Bible seriously. I'm going to take the Bible seriously for six episodes coming out roughly every five days during the month of January, looking at the entirety of Inappropriate Conversations number 150, opening the scriptures, and doing it kind of chunk by chunk. The technique won't be that difficult for me. When you think about it, I'm basically just going to find most of the places where there was a break to introduce a promo, uh, giving me a chance on a podcast recording of that length to catch my breath, but also to pivot from one uh, text being considered in detail to a different new set of texts going to be considered in detail. And that's kind of how I'm going to manage that. This may also bleed into the month of February because the, uh, the opening the scriptures episode, even through talking about it, I intentionally left out things that I knew I'd covered before where I had in a past inappropriate conversations, maybe 131, taking the Bible seriously, Christianity 301, that idea. Looked at some key passages in the book of Acts that tell us a lot more about the experience of Peter and what we can learn from Peter's experience moving from an ardent defender of Judaism into the, you know, well, for some, the first pope of Christianity. And I also may refer back to another inappropriate conversations, even older, in the month of February. If I had my way, there might be a talk back that looks at Song of Songs in its entirety. We will see. These are the moments in the time of the history of the show where I've both demonstrated that I take the Bible extremely seriously. And, and how does that reconcile with the points of view that have been shared throughout more than 200 podcast episodes of inappropriate conversations alone? not to mention the Walk the Earth podcast. So this is a way of giving an introduction that there will be several podcast posts during the month of January, all of them looking back to Inappropriate Conversations number 150, in kind of a sequential set of chunks that will carve it up into a six-pack. So 
That's what's going to happen in the month of January with content here on Inappropriate Conversations. I do want to take a moment, though, on this one, first podcast of the new year, to deal with kind of a side topic. It's not a totally ancillary idea because in the process of kind of sharing an old podcast that demonstrates just exactly how thoughtful I hope I am about the Bible and Christianity and theology and even political issues surrounding the Bible and Christianity and theology, that I think it's helpful to sort of demonstrate what I mean by being thoughtful, what a careful, uh, considered point of view is. So I will go there. Briefly, though, the episodes that you are uh, that I'm going to be excerpting are still available online. If someone were, for some strange reason, to get very impatient and prefer not to listen to the six-pack, but to go back to Inappropriate Conversations 150 from September of, I believe, 2013, and just kind of take all that in, September 2014, I stand corrected, and take all that in, every episode I've ever recorded is available at www.inappropriateconversations.org. I don't take shows down. Even the very first episode where my experiments with sound were not of a very high quality, those are all available there. I can be interacted with in several ways as well. Via email at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. On Twitter, I'm also IC underscore Greg. There is a page for inappropriate conversations listed as a cause on Facebook, a separate one for Walk the Earth. Stitcher Smart Radio is one of the other ways that relatively recent episodes of inappropriate conversations can be heard. Walk the Earth as well, because the two podcasts share the same RSS feed. Uh, kind of the same idea as getting from any other podcatcher. Stitcher is sort of another kind of a duplicative method of getting a podcast off of iTunes, for example. And SoundCloud is the other one. I've reached the point of getting very, very close to Inappropriate Conversations number 150 and posting a SoundCloud clip of that. My strategy with SoundCloud has now for years been to share just enough to give people a sense of the show. I've been struggling with how do you use a relatively small clip to give people a sense of Inappropriate Conversations 150. Taking a piece of that podcast out of context, for example, would be extremely inconsistent with the entire idea of a show that's based on sharing things at length and in context. But what I've decided to do when I get there, and I think it will be probably during the month of January, is to share just this opening piece, which is going to be part one of our talk back to Inappropriate Conversations 150. And then combining that with the different drummer at the end, so sort of the bookends, pull the beginning 20 minutes or so, pull the last 20 minutes or so, put that together. So far, the SoundCloud clips that I've shared have been contiguous. It's been a slice of the show, sometimes short, sometimes relatively long, but a contiguous slice of the show. But I think when I get to this one for 150, I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to apply the bookends because as I recall from memory, the opening of this particular podcast episode back when it was originally posted and in the form I'm going to share now was talking about the too long didn't read version of it and that you could get the gist of what I was going to say, the themes I was going to hit on by listening to just the first 20 minutes or so and obviously the different drummer segment being put at the very end to make it easy for people who wanted to just go there and listen to that or go there and listen to that first. Having said that, I wanted to begin with what I'm going to call a thought experiment. And the problem that I'm trying to solve is what I'm perceiving, and I think accurately perceiving, 
as your typical American's inability to comprehend the scale and scope and size of numbers like a million or 10 million or a billion. And the way I've chosen kind of this year to discuss this, because the issue is becoming extremely important. We are having a government shutdown at the time that I'm recording over a question of spending more than $5 billion on a single construction project. Well, is that a lot or is that not a lot? Should we be concerned or should we not be concerned? Or I've actually you know lost sleep at times over the thought that when a factory closes or a retail organization goes out of business, that you tend to see the courts approving $10 million golden parachute severance payouts to a lot of key executives and nothing whatsoever for the people who were probably living paycheck to paycheck, in many cases living off minimum wage, or at least living off a much smaller salary. The people who didn't make the key strategic decisions that put that particular factory or company in jeopardy, nevertheless having no safety net whatsoever. And then the question there is, well, is $10 million a lot? I mean, $10 million may, may not seem a lot if that particular CEO or even entire board of directors and management team are, are making that much annually. It's just one year, after all. Or if, if the salary was $20 million a year, this is, this is just a half a year's worth of severance. Well, a half a year's worth of severance for somebody in the mailroom would go one heck of a long way. It might be the difference between homelessness and no homelessness. Whereas a $10 million golden parachute to somebody who managed a company into oblivion uh, probably wouldn't even force that person to sell a summer home, would be my guess. But how do you get your mind around the scope of this? And as I was thinking about it, I thought to myself that the best way to do it is to think in terms of turning this, because I'm essentially talking about money. So what if we were actually counting out these dollars? What if the process of doing it was like counting back change at the cash register? That here's your 75 cents, that makes $3, 4 and 5 makes 10 another 10 makes 20, you know, you know that sort of thing, right? Um, counting it all up. And to my way of thinking, you could reasonably say that maybe one per second, whether that's a dollar per second, one unit per second, is a reasonable scale. Now, people are capable of counting faster than that. But if you're going to count with accuracy, and if you're going to spend an entire day doing it, Talking about, talking about a relatively unattractive job, for this job to even make any sense, there would have to be a certain amount of gamification involved just to make the experience something other than just absolute you know, mental drudgery. But if we assume that the job wouldn't drive the person doing the job completely insane, that somehow this process of counting to a million could be done in a way that was at least somewhat engaging, how long would it take? And what would your average rate be if accuracy was was viewed as really crucial and paramount? And what I came up with was, well, one per minute. I mean, sorry, one per second. So if you've got one per second, you've got 60 seconds in a minute, you've got 60 minutes in an hour, you've got 3,600 seconds in an hour. And then the question I was trying to wrestle with was, well, you can't really you know, multiply that into a 24-hour day. Because I'm already concerned that the average human being is not going to be successful in an eight-hour day doing a task like this without kind of losing their mind. So I think you've got to stick with some concept, you know, relative to an eight-hour day. Maybe a little bit longer, maybe, but relative to that. So I just came up with the number of 30,000. 
And if there's 3,600 seconds in an hour, and I said, well, well, how many hours a day are you going to work? 8.3333 is 30,000. So basically, an eight-hour and 20-minute day, that's your work day, uh, when you're on the clock. So it doesn't include lunch or breaks or coming in late and staying late. But if, on average, you're spending eight hours and 20 minutes quote, at work, unquote, in your full-time job, that's that's realistic that a buck per second when you're counting it out, putting it on the table, so to speak, and um, the eight eight hour day, eight and a half hour day. If this is with no time off either, this is eight and a half, eight hours and twenty minutes every single day in succession with no breaks. So if you tried to carve this into a weekend situation where there was always two days off in a row to break up this monotony, well now you're talking like more like a ten eleven hour day, maybe even more than that. So. I think if somebody said, well, hey, this eight-hour day, you're being unrealistic. It could be done much more efficiently than that. Okay, well, let's let's do a five-day work week with like 10 and a half, 11-hour days. It still comes out to this 30,000. So what I guess I'm getting down to is that the denominator of the math I want to discuss with us here for an eight-hour, 20-minute work day every day with no days off ever is 30,000. So one million seconds, how long does it take? To count to a million, if your rate of counting accurately is a buck per second, it would take you more than 33 days to count to a million. And I wonder if your average person knows that. Maybe to some folks that number might seem small or smaller than they expected. Because to most of us, a million dollars is an awful lot of money. And I think that you can tell that people seem to be conflating concepts of one million, ten million, hundred million, billion, all that. Because they probably think 1 million would take longer to count than 33 straight 8-hour and 20-minute days uninterrupted by any any time off from a days off perspective. So what's the 10 million? How long would it take you to count the hypothetical severance bonus I've described earlier for the CEO of, of a factory or a company that's gone out of business where the people who actually bring up the sales or process orders are getting no severance whatsoever because we've got to make sure that this individual does get their final payday. That 10 million in seconds would take 333.33 days. That's basically a full year. Let's say that even if your game plan is to work eight hours a day every day with no weekends, that that probably is also not sustainable. If we're not honoring national holidays, for example, that 4th of July and Labor Day, for crying out loud, these should be days off, and maybe three weeks of vacation and a week of sick time. If there was some like standard level of days off, like 40, 45 days off during that span of never having a weekend, 333.33 days is a whole year. It's probably more than a whole year of time that it would take you to count to 10 million, meaning that it's a huge investment for, in the process of working through a bankruptcy, for a judge to just casually decide that, yes, yeah, the CEO should get his golden parachute. We shouldn't take that for granted. 10 million is a heck of a lot of money. And in fact, when you start talking about more than $10 million, and per, you know, perhaps I, the idea of the tax rate on all the dollars greater than 10 million for some people being a lot higher than it is today, looking more like it did in the 1960s. Well, that seems a little bit less unreasonable. It seems like it makes more sense when you consider just 
just how big are these stacks of dollar bills? How long is it going to take you to count them? You're talking about a year's worth of effort just to count it up. So maybe there ought to be some sort of, you know, greater good involved in terms of saying, if we're going to give you like a $10 million buyout to go with the $10 million salary you already made, that maybe half that money should be taxed at a higher rate just to help us deal with the fact that we're losing all the other tax revenue from all the other employees who were laid off when this business went out of business. All this is just intro, though, with the assumptions that I've made in a way that I hope is reasonable and that anyone who doubts me can grab a calculator and check my math. But it's all just prelude to the question of what is a billion? Think through your answer. Because to me, this is really the biggest problem on some of these conversations we've been having in the last year or so. I don't think your average American understands exactly how big a billion is. They think thousand, then million, then billion, but there's a lot more going on there inside the numbers. And again, I think to some degree for any high school student, it's got to be pretty obvious, but it's not so obvious that we've taken it to heart and that we understand the scope of some of the, let's call it requests that people are making of our taxpayer dollars. Put it this way. If it takes more than one month of full-time job work to realistically count to one million, how long would it take, presuming that there's not a stamina issue? So, ceteris paribus, all things being equal, somebody could continue eight hours and 20 minutes a day, every day, with no time off, to keep hitting this number. And that that the, uh, the one million would take you 33.3 days. How long would it take to count to a billion, one dollar at a time, with all these other assumptions? Go ahead and cheat. Grab a calculator if you'd like, because it's it's so easy, which makes it so annoying that so many people don't seem to have a clue. And that cluelessness leads to some very dangerously false assumptions. Here's the answer. It would take 33,333.33 days to count that billion. That is 91 years plus three months of every single day for more than eight hours a day, counting at a rate of a buck per second. 91 years. That is more than a lifetime for most of us. A lifetime of just counting every single day without exception for more than eight hours. When when a politician wants us to spend five billion dollars on something, anything, don't care what it is, they aren't asking us for the equivalent of a half a year of shelling out those bucks one at a time? No. It would require more than 456 uninterrupted years of drudgery and busy work to account for it. The 33 plus days to count to a million times five, yeah, you're talking about about a half a year, six months, give or take. But the five million is six months. Five billion is 456 years. Put it this way, we're talking about 166,666 days plus. It's actually closer to 166,667 days. So if there is a moral to this intro, it's that I don't have that kind of time or resources to spend on any idea, any idea that isn't absolutely necessary, extremely well vetted, and with more than an honest attempt at consensus driving it. I haven't seen consensus building at all on some of the $5 billion proposals that have been made here lately. There is clear evidence that these aren't well vetted, 
And I think if they were well vetted, it would raise questions about whether or not this expensive approach is absolutely necessary. I don't have 456 years to give to this, and neither do any of you. So, consider this a thought experiment. An example of what it means to take things seriously. In this case, I've taken time and money seriously, which, ironically, is something I usually don't do. It's kind of interesting. I'm the guy who's you know, forwardly prese- you know, presented the idea very forward ways that I don't think time is actually all that real. And I don't really spend all that time, much time obsessing about money. But when you get to extremes of this sort, it makes sense to stop and think critically. I also believe that if you have a Christian worldview, whether that Christian worldview is going to force you to impose your will on other people or not, if you've got a Christian worldview, then you ought to be taking that seriously as well. And that means subjecting your Christian worldview to the same kinds of critical thinking. Inappropriate Conversations number 150. That September all those years ago was all about subjecting scriptures and assumptions from the coming from the perspective of a Christian worldview to extremely critical thinking, connecting the dots and taking very seriously what the commitments have to be to truth in this case, just like you'd have to take very seriously what we mean by time and money in the other topic I hit in this intro. That's enough introductory material for now. I'll just close out this uh, this talk back. Uh, kickoff by saying that obviously there isn't going to be a different drummer for any of the first five episodes shared here on the talkbacks for the month of January, because I'm taking a single podcast episode from the past, carving it up into six pieces. We'll get to the different drummer at the very end. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about opening the scriptures. I was going to subtitle this 150th Inappropriate Conversations with something along the lines of freeing Christ from the closet of Christian homophobia, but I think the topic is going to be broader than that. Here I am at the beginning of the recording session looking out over what is going to come as I record, and I can already project this might be the longest inappropriate conversation ever recorded, and it won't necessarily be one that's long because there's a lot of additional sound clips and promos or things of that nature. I've got a lot I want to cover. So in order to support that, I think I want to start by making a quick joke about the saying you see on the internet a lot these days for uh, TLDR, the too long didn't read version of this particular episode. I think I'm going to start with some things that summarize kind of my thoughts right at the beginning, and I'll also tell you that the different drummer segment can be found very close to the very end. So if there are people who simply cannot sustain the length and breadth that I want to cover, how deeply I want to dive into the topic today, that's sort of the shortcut that you can use. And essentially, if I were to speak and kind of frame my thoughts around the idea of Christian homophobia, 
I think probably the best way to do it is to kind of turn the corner. I put a post up on Facebook, Walk the Earth and Inappropriate Conversations both have Facebook pages. On this one, I've pinned it to the top of Walk the Earth as, at least for the time being, a sort of a permanent setting there. I also shared the same commentary on Inappropriate Conversations, and at some point, who knows, I might on some of my personal pages as well, because I feel so passionately about it. A lot of it is my response to the love the sinner, hate the sin talk. And I think for too long, I've simply addressed that by gently telling people that that's not in the Bible. It isn't scripture. It isn't what Jesus told us to do. But I keep getting responses from Christians who say, yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway, or it's okay to do this plus what Jesus said. So I've decided that maybe it's time to be a little bit more confrontational or to do what I'm going to call comprehensively correcting people who talk about love the sin or hate the sin or similar concepts and tell them what actually is biblical. What does the Bible say? So here are some directives that are individually and in combination with each other very different from what I would describe as the condescending notion of loving others in spite of their sinfulness. That uh, looking down the nose type of love. The thing that C.S. Lewis would have derided as merely pride. So here's a few concepts. Love one another even as I have loved you. The words of Jesus. John 15, verse 12. Examine yourself. The words of Paul. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. If you judge someone else's sin, you condemn yourself, both Jesus and Paul. From Jesus, it's Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. And from Paul, it's Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And finally, always share the hope you have in Christ, but do so gently and with respect. Those are the words of Peter from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Actually, parts of those two verses. So this section says... What does Jesus really say about love? It's not love the sin or hate the sin. It's simply love one another, even as I have loved you, which should draw us into taking a look at exactly how did Jesus love people during the accounts we have recorded in the New Testament of his earthly walk. I think we're going to find Jesus spending a lot of time with people that modern Christians say we should not spend any time with at all. Paul answers the question of this, you know, this hate the sin idea. Well, what are we supposed to do with sin? If we're not supposed to hate the sin in others, Paul makes it really simple. Examine yourself. He even goes so far as to say the people who do not examine their own sin prior to putting on airs and participating fully in worship and going through communion and acting as if they've got it all together might actually face uh, serious, serious judgment in this lifetime, not just in the afterlife. Examine yourself is what Paul has to say about it. And then this notion of judgment. We hear a lot of talk about, well, judge judge not lest ye be judged. Here's what Jesus really meant by that. He meant judge by the right standard, use the right kind of judgment. And I think that's probably not fully accurate. Because I think what Jesus would say is the wrong kind of judgment is anything that focuses elsewhere rather than inwardly. Paul put it best. If you judge someone else's sin, you condemn yourself. And he's echoing the words of Jesus. Not just the words you know, recorded, but perhaps the words he heard from Jesus on the road to Damascus. We'll get to that story in a little bit. Finally, what are we supposed to do then? If we're not supposed to judge others, if the examination of, of sin and rooting out sin is an inward thing, we're examining ourselves and not spending our time examining others, if love is much more simple and therefore much more profound than modern Christianity tells us it is, if it's just as simple as that, love one another, done talking, love one another, 
then what are we supposed to do? Christians who want to reach out, Christians who want to engage the world. I've made a lot of statements here from Scripture that suggest that they should focus inwardly first and foremost, get their house in order first. But when they do look outwardly, I think Peter gives us the really great direction, the direction that we should follow. It says, always share the hope that you have in Christ. Always do it, but do so gently and with respect. If you're not sharing the gospel, if you're not talking about your relationship with Jesus in a way that is gentle, that is respectful of others, that is concerned about their feelings and how you might be perceived, how you might be coming off, if you're not aware of that, then just keep it to yourself. This isn't me saying it as Greg. This is Peter, the apostle, the rock upon whom Jesus said he was going to build his church. So that's the too long didn't read intro. But what I'm going to do the rest of the way here is deal with a lot more scripture, a lot more aggressively, and perhaps a lot more directly. What I'm going to do is deal with scripture at length. Now, the reason I do this is that people like me, it's not just me. In fact, I'm going to share a quote from a pastor in Kansas City in just a moment who faces the same challenge. We often get told that we are selective, that we are picking and choosing from scripture. And ironically, when it comes to questions about sexual orientation, we get this statement made to us by people who sometimes act as if they think the Bible only has six or seven verses in it. So I'm going to cover a lot more ground than six or seven verses. I'm going to do so from the entire Bible, but as you might imagine from things I've written in the past at uh, www.inappropriateconversations.org, there's a tab up front that has uh, the very header that has Christianity on it. It really is the link to the article Christianity 201, Time for Solid Food. And there's also an about page for inappropriate conversations and an about page for Walk the Earth. But that's actually a, a very long essay. I'm going to refer to some of that same scripture from there again and, and maybe cover some familiar ground. I also know that when I get to the end of the scripture that I'm going to walk through today, that there's going to be a reference back to even a show as recently as Inappropriate Conversations 146, The Idea of Christ. And I've spent some time here getting ready for episode 150, trying to get my head around the idea of repetition. I was sitting in church the other day and listening to not just the sermon, but also carefully paying attention to the scripture reading. And I realized that it's highly unlikely that I'm ever going to hear a scripture reading in church that I haven't read before, because I believe in one manner or another, I've read the Bible through more than once. And it's possible that maybe there would be a Sunday where I would hear a scripture that I've never heard used as the scripture reading in a worship service before. I haven't lived that long, but, you know, f several decades and enough time that, that even that seems unlikely. And what it means is that I'm hearing some of the stories again. This concept in the old hymn, I Love to Tell the Story, has a line in it about the people who know the story best still wanting to hear it again, still wanting to hear it with the others and perhaps even from the others, that there's a repetition in the way we handle Scripture. So I hope a lot of this show actually on some level sounds familiar. I'm okay if it does, but I'm not willing to take the chance that skipping some of the repetition is going to be the right move. I'd rather repeat myself, I guess, than leave some of the words unspoken, because I am not going to pick and choose. I'm not going to build a selective case. I'm going to read at length from numerous scriptures. I'm going to put those scriptures into the context, not just the, the magic verse. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how they connect with each other. I'll find parallel passages between the Gospels. I'll jump in some cases to the reference points where 
authors in the New Testament are referring to Old Testament scriptures, and I'll jump to the Old Testament scriptures and tick and tie that out, I want to make sure that I leave nothing left unsaid. And the reason for that is that I believe that I have what some people call a high view of scripture. Unfortunately, the people who use that phrase most often use that phrase to suggest that you only have a high view of scripture if you're still deeply mired in legalism. The argument that you tend to hear, the argument that Pastor Adam Hamilton from Kansas City had heard about his view of scripture, that it wasn't a high view of scripture because it wasn't, it wasn't married to every single verse, as if the verses themselves were some sort of, I don't know, magic potion. In Walk the Earth 18, released most recent to this episode, I talk a little bit about that line between faith and superstition, and so often Christians use Bible verses as if there's some sort of an incantation, rather than it's actually what it really is, a story being told to us unfolding across a great period of time. Here's what Hamilton says about this notion of a high view of Scripture in his recently released book called Making Sense of the Bible. He says this, Someone with a high view of Scripture actually reads the Bible, listens for God to speak through it, seeks to be shaped by its words, and tries to follow its commands. His argument is that a lot of times he gets pushback from people who claim they have a high view of Scripture, but haven't paid any attention to it at all. They believe it says stuff like, God helps those who helps themselves, or God wants us to love the sinner but hate the sin. All of these sort of misquotes don't reflect a high view of Scripture. They reflect somebody who hasn't read the text at all. This morning, on the day I am recording, I put a quick tweet out there just to sort of set my mind on the right path, and without looking it up to quote it exactly, I'll just paraphrase it. It essentially says that if you believe that the infallible Word of God is the Bible, you haven't read the Bible or you haven't read it very well, or you need to read it again. Because what the Bible says the infallible word of God is, is Jesus. It's the Christ. And to put that kind of infallibility, that kind of high view, into anything other than the Christ himself, as borders on blasphemy. So, when I return from a quick break here, I'm going to dive into some notes that I took while I was on a cruise to Alaska sitting in a lounge area, looking out through a big window as the ship passed slowly through Glacier Bay. And with my phone in my hand and the notepad you know, application open, I began to just get this sort of inspiration that maybe it was time that I made a manifesto of sorts. That I'm not going to speak from a manifesto of, po- of politics. That's The politics side of inappropriate conversations is unlikely to get some sweeping broad statement of intent. And on the um, pop culture side, it could happen. I wouldn't rule it out, but it's unlikely because I, I want to have a very open mind about all things related to arts and culture. In the area of human sexuality, there's a lot of things I just need to keep to myself because my most important relationships are kind of built along that sort of sense of privacy, and I don't want to violate that sense of privacy. But I will today kind of open up some thoughts in a manifesto of sorts related to this concept of what the Bible actually says. And the inspiration came to me while looking at one of the great beauties in nature, at least in the American topographical and oceanic landscape. So if you take that as the inspiration, the intent here, though, is to answer once and for all why it is that I feel that I'm not just an Orthodox Christian, but a very Orthodox Christian. And although I might not fit the bill of quote-unquote conservative Christianity from the perspective of the religious right, I certainly fit the bill when it comes to being conservative with regards to Scripture, because most of what I'm going to share the rest of the way is Scripture. And it's Scripture that my high-minded view of is so high 
that I've actually not only chose to read it, but I'm choosing to share it. And I'm not choosing to share it with select chapters and verses. I'm choosing to share it at length. Hi, Russell. Are you like mommy? Are you doing a podcast? A podcast. Podcast. Good boy. That is pretty much the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> podcast. Anomaly. Something that deviates from what is standard, normal, or expected. An oddity. Peculiarity. Irregularity. Inconsistency. Incongruity. A rarity. I'm Jen. And I'm Angela. And we're the socially functional co-hosts of Anomaly. The podcast with a unique perspective, a female perspective on all things geek. Star Trek. Star Wars. Lord of the Rings. Buffy. Firefly. Gaming. Books. Costuming. And general geek topics. The sometimes monthly, but always entertaining, Anomaly Podcast. Anomalypodcast.com. I had to overcome the temptation not to make this the focus of the 150th show. Mainly it was because many of these words I've shared before. Some in parts of podcasts, some in blog posts, some in articles on the website, the one I mentioned earlier, inappropriateconversations.org. But sometimes repetition is really a good idea. Sometimes repetition is absolutely a necessity. Many times I've shared a word of scripture with people that I know they have heard, they have heard and read many times only to see the light bulb come on over their heads, maybe for the first time, or maybe for the first time in a long time. Context. Perspective. Repetition. Sometimes it is valuable to restate and review. Consider the story of Paul visiting Berea. Some learn by reading, others learn by hearing, and yet others learn by some of the both of those in combination with each other. It's also a bit about taking the time to quote at length to speak in context, and to identify parallels. Too many Christians today treat the Bible not as a story, or even as merely scripture, nor they treat it like a book of spells. Put the magic words together and you have the power to cast people into hell. Eh? Right? Jesus saw it differently. So did Paul. And so has almost every good theologian since. From Acts chapter 17, verses 10 through 12, here's what I mean. As soon as night came, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived, they went to the synagogue. The people there were more open-minded than the people in Thessalonica. They listened to the message with great eagerness, and every day they studied the scriptures to see if what Paul said was really true. Many of them believed, and many Greek women of high social standing, and many Greek men also believed. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, through chapter 6, verse 3, says, in his life on earth, Jesus made his prayers and requests with loud cries and tears to God, who could save him from death. Because he was humble and devoted, God heard him. But even though he was God's son, he learned through his sufferings to be obedient. When he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God declared him to be high priest in the priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, it's interesting to note, was viewed as a high priest before the time of Joseph, before the tribes of Israel, before one of those tribes was set aside as a Levitical order. So this is a high priest before there were high priests. Back to Hebrews. 
There is much we have to say in this matter, but it is hard to explain to you because you are so slow to understand. There has been enough time for you to be teachers, yet you still need someone to teach you the first lessons of God's message. Instead of eating solid food, you still have to drink milk. Anyone who has to drink milk is still a child, without any experience in the matter of right and wrong. Solid food, on the other hand, is for adults, who through practice are able to distinguish between good and evil. Note how Paul takes the concept of right and wrong as being simple and childish, and the concept of dealing with good and evil being a far more complex idea, and he is telling the Christians of his time, and I would join him in telling many of the Christians of our time, that you are not even equipped to speak intelligently about right and wrong, much less good and evil. Picking up with chapter 6, let us go forward then to mature teaching and leave behind us the first lessons of the Christian message. We should not lay again the foundation of turning away from useless works and believing in God, of the teaching of baptisms, and the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and the eternal judgment. Let us go forward. And this is what we will do if God allows. Notice how the denominational differences that cause infighting. If you got together every Christian denomination, including Roman Catholicism, hey, just in America, just pull together some Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterians, and Catholics and get them in a room together. And if they decide to argue about their differences instead of focus upon the shared blessings that they've experienced through Jesus Christ, what would those differences be about? I suggest to you that those differences would be about the subtle interpretations of the principles that were laid out right here by the author of the letter to the Hebrews. It would be over stuff about baptism and healing and um, resurrection and judgment and hell and heaven. And it would be all those sort of things. Let's move forward from this. These ideas are foundational. They shouldn't, there shouldn't be cracks in our foundation. We shouldn't be focusing on relaying the foundation. I've shared this one before in the intro to a passage when I was going to share a lot about my theological views, and I'll do it again here. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 11. It's taking the piece that I've shared in the past and broadening its context. Again, consistent with the theme of this show, talking about these things at length, opening up these scriptures to what they really and truly say inside the context that some of the passages you've heard before were written, but also in conjunction with one another. Here's Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. It is only our own spirit within us that knows all about us. In the same way, only God's spirit knows all about God. We have not received this world spirit. Instead, we have received the spirit sent by God, so that we may know all that God has given us. So then, we do not speak in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit as we explain spiritual truths to those who have the Spirit. Whoever does not have the Spirit cannot receive the gifts that come from God's Spirit. Such a person really does not understand them, and they seem to be nonsense, because their value can be judged only on a spiritual basis. Whoever has the Spirit, however, is able to judge the value of everything, but no one is able to judge him. As Scripture says, Who knows the mind of the Lord? Who is able to give him advice? We, however, have the mind of Christ. As a matter of fact, my friends, I could not talk to you as I talk to people who have the Spirit. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world, as children in the Christian faith. I had to feed you milk, not solid food, because you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it, because you still live as the people of this world live. 
When there is jealousy among you and you quarrel with one another, doesn't this prove that you belong to this world living by its standards? When one of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting like worldly people? After all, who is Apollos? And who is Paul? We are simply God's servants, by whom you were led to believe. Each one of us does the work which the Lord gave him to do. I planted the seed. Apollos watered the plant. But it was God who made the plant grow. The one who plants and the one who waters really do not matter. It is God who matters because he makes the plant grow. There is no difference between the one who plants and the one who waters. God will reward each one according to the work each has done. For we are partners, working together for God, and you are God's field. You are also God's building. Using the gift that God gave me, I did the work of an expert builder and laid the foundation. And someone else is building on it. But each one of you must be careful how you build. For God has already placed Jesus Christ as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. In the Walk the Earth podcast, which shares this same feed, can also be found at inappropriateconversations.org, both of which actually are available on Stitcher at stitcher.com for those who listen to podcasts on the go. The Walk the Earth podcast really came about, it was initiated by my decision to leave a church over exactly this kind of petty jealousy and infighting that Paul describes right at the beginning of his first of two letters to the church in Corinth, letting them know that in his mind they were still children, they were still not ready for solid food. And I was interacting then, still am now, via Facebook and other means, with Christians from that church where I engaged in active ministry for 15 plus years, who I would still say now must be given milk and not solid food. Because if you look at what they believe they're called to do in relationship to people who have a different sexual orientation or in a different economic condition, it's clear that they do not have the heart of Christ. They have not been able to comprehend what Jesus told them to do. And I think you'll see that if you think in terms of the religious right mentality that we see so often on TV from televangelists in particular, as I read through some of the scriptures that tell us where Christ's heart was, we're going to find a big gap between what Jesus says to do and what those who claim to love him most say we should do. Finally, as I work through some introductory material here, I want to talk about this concept of how do you change from being someone who needs milk and not solid food to someone who is actually mature enough. And I think we often hear Paul describing it with the phrase, renewing your mind. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. So then, my friends, because of God's great mercy to us, I appeal to you. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, dedicated to his service and pleasing to him. This is the true worship you should offer. Do not conform yourself to the standard of this world, but let God transform you inwardly by a complete change of your mind. Then you will be able to know the will of God, what is good and is pleasing to him and is perfect. And because of God's gracious gift to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you should. Instead, be modest in your thinking and judge yourself according to the amount of faith that God has given you. We have many parts in the one body, and all these parts have different functions. In the same way, though we are many, we are one body in union with Christ, and we are all joined to each other as different parts of one body. So we are to use our different gifts in accordance with the grace that God has given us. If our gift is to speak God's message, 
we should do it according with the faith we have. I rarely pray on inappropriate conversation shows. I always do on Walk the Earth. But this was the point when I was taking notes, kind of praying on a cruise ship, you know, uh, off the coast of Alaska, where it seemed to me that I probably should stop. And at the very least, pray the words that you find in Psalms 19, verse 14. Lord my God, may the words and my thoughts be acceptable to you, for you are my refuge and my redeemer. Lord, these are these, these are your words. Help me to share your words, your way, on this day. Amen. Music by Kevin McLeod.